You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, please. Matthew 25, and we'll read verse 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. Last time we were together when I preached, I looked at the parable of the ten virgins at the wedding, and They weren't ready for the second coming of the Lord. They failed. They failed because they thought that their job was too easy. That was their problem. And so they were basically asleep at the switch. Well... Today, it's the same theme. I'm going to ask you the question, are you ready? But we find that the failure in this text, it's not because he thinks it's too easy. It's because he thinks it's too hard. So there's all kinds of excuses not to be ready. One excuse is, well, it's too easy. He wasn't paying attention. The other one, it's too hard, so I just throw in the towel. But neither one of those excuses will hold up on Judgment Day. And if there's one theme that's come up again and again throughout this time, as we've been in this section of Scripture, it's to be ready. So I hope you hear those two words in your head as you contemplate the various decisions you have to make throughout the week. It's be ready. Are you ready? that important question. And so I ask the question again today. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready? Verse 14 of Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground, and here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew what I, that I reap where I do not sow, and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then he ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, not even what he has, or even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant in the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that everyone here would be ready. If there's anyone here who is not walking with Christ and in disobedience to Jesus Christ, I pray that he or she would repent. Would you sanctify us for having gathered around your word and heard it together? And would the Lord Jesus... And the urgency of the moment be first upon our hearts. Would your spirit empower the preaching of your word? Would it empower the hearing of your word? Oh God, help us. We need you. Oh, how we need you. Amen. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet your master? You're ready to meet Jesus Christ. Jesus is instructing his disciples from the Mount of Olives, looking over Jerusalem, having just pronounced God's curse on the temple in the city. God's curse was pronounced, and the Lord stands there, and from his vantage point, he could have seen the temple, and he prophesied in this Olivet Discourse, this sermon from the Mount of Olives, he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 A.D., about 37 years after he issued this prophecy. Chapter 24, verse 3, the disciples ask him a question from the Mount of Olives. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And this precipitates, or from this precipitates the Olivet Discourse. Verse 4 through 35 deals with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Verse 36 to the end of chapter 25, deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first section is of the destruction of Jerusalem, the second section of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're in the section that deals with the coming of Christ. When he comes in judgment, and he's discerning amongst men who is ready and chapter 25, some will come to this text and they'll think this is a warning to the lost. Or rather, this is a warning to those who are outside of the church. No. Listen to me today. Chapter 25, and the question, are you ready? And the commandment to be ready 
is primarily a warning for those in the church. It's primarily a warning for those who have been baptized, for those who think they're Christians. And what Jesus is telling us through this section of Scripture is that there are many people who think they're Christians, but they're terribly mistaken. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you said the sinner's prayer. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you don't even remember a Sunday when you didn't come to church. And this is a warning that you might not be ready. This is a warning that you might not be saved. That's what this is. This is primarily a warning for those in the church. Verse 36 through 44 is a warning to be ready. Verse 45 through 51 is a description of how to be ready, namely to be faithful with the discharge of your duties. Verse 1 through 13 of this chapter, we were here last time, was the parable of the ten virgins telling us to be ready. And then today is the parable of the talents, again, telling us we need to be ready. As Henry Alford said over 100 years ago, he said, The foolish virgins failed from thinking their part too easy. The wicked servants fail from thinking their part too hard. Today I'll walk through the parable, make some application at the end of the sermon. So you hold on to the end for the application. I'm going to walk through the parable because it's really one story and the punch is at the end. So I'll walk through it. I believe that justification is by faith alone. There's no doubt of that in my mind. It's a foundational doctrine of the church that justification is by faith alone, but I also believe as a foundational doctrine of the church, as clear as day as Scripture, is that justifying faith is never alone. Justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. Those who have been justified by faith always have a changed life. So if you're here today and you think you've been justified by faith and you say, well, I, I, said, I said a prayer, I actually have my name written in the back of my Bible, or I was confirmed in front of my church, or I was baptized, baptized as an infant or as an adult, whatever the case may be, don't presume that you are regenerate just because your mother said you are. Don't presume that you are regenerate just because you are convinced you are. This is a grave warning and it is a call for serious introspection. Our parable today teaches that there are the ones who already will actually do something for God. They'll actually accomplish something for Him. The ones who are ready will actually do something for God. So we find today, as I divide this text up, number one, the master leaves the servants. Number two, the master returns. Number three, the master finds a slave who's not ready, and then I get to the application. So we just follow through the story. Number one, the master leaves, verses 4 through 18. Jesus introduces us in, or sorry, verse 14 through 18. Jesus introduces us in verse 14 to the key players in the parable. There's a master and there's three slaves. The ESV translates it servant. The NASB translates it slave. The Greek word is doulos. I think the better translation is slave. We ought to consider ourselves, this is a very appropriate term for Christians, we ought to consider ourselves as slaves of Jesus. He is our master. And it is a joy to be our master's slaves. He purchased us with his blood. 
And therefore, he owns us. Very appropriate that we are portrayed as slaves in the text and Jesus is the master. Well, the master goes away and he leaves his resources with the slaves. Look at what it says in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants or his slaves. If you look at the footnote in your ESV, it actually says bond servants, which is another word for slaves, and entrusted to them his property. This is what Jesus did. He entrusted to them his property. This is what Ephesians 4 verse 8 tells us. Jesus has ascended to heaven and he has entrusted to us various spiritual gifts in the person of the Holy Spirit. The master is like Jesus and we are like the slaves. Verse 15, the master distributes his goods to the slaves as he chooses. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. This is also true of Jesus. According to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, he has left diverse gifts amongst the church. We don't have, we all don't have the same gifts. We all don't have the same abilities. Some have more gifts, some have less, less gifts. Some have more abilities, some have less abilities. Some have more blessings, some have less blessings. Jesus distributes the blessings as he sees fit, and it's up to us to simply be faithful with what he's given us. The master distributes the talents. Now, there's some debate as to what a talent is in this text, but I think it's safe to conclude that a talent in the original language is a lot of money. One commentator notes, suggesting that one talent is 20 years' wages. And so five talents is 100 years' wages, two talents is 40 years' wages, and one talent is 20 years' wages. But the master nonetheless instructs or entrusts his stuff to the slaves diversely, giving each slave different gifts, and then he goes away. The slave with five talents invests his money, and the money doubles. Verse 16, he who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. Simple enough to understand. The slave with two talents does the same thing. It says in verse 17, so also he who had two talents made two more talents. Doubles his investment. Easy enough to understand. Now those two verses read exactly the same way except for the number of talents. And so it's shocking to read verse 18 and we find out what happened to this other slave where it says, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. It's shocking to hear that because the first slave doubles his talents, the second slave invests and doubles his talent, and the third slave does nothing with his talent but simply digs a hole in the ground and puts his talent in the hole. The master gives talents to three slaves. He leaves. Two slaves double their investment, and one slave hides the investment. He puts the money or the talent in a hole in the ground. And so the master left them with the talents. We move on. Verse 19 through 23, the master returns after some time to investigate. He actually returns to collect on his investment. We should assume that Jesus is going to return and collect on the investment he's entrusted to us. Verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The servant, as the master returns, who was entrusted with five talents, is really excited to show his master, his return on his investment. He doubled his master's investment. Verse 20. It says, 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And so you picture this slave with his doubling his investment. His eyes are wide and there's enthusiasm in his voice. There's excitement to see his master. And he comes up to his master with his hands and he says, look at what I made for you, masters. So much love towards his master, so much respect towards his master, so much gratitude towards his master. His esteem of his master is so high. He's just so happy to make his master happy. Look what I did for you, master. The master's thrilled. And so the master rewards him with a word of commendation and, and bliss, joy. Verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He rewards him with a word of commendation and joy, bliss. The same thing happens with the servant entrusted with two talents. Look at verse 22. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. You picture him again. Just like the other slave that invested the five talents, doubled the investment. Now this slave invested two talents, doubled the investment, runs up to his master. His eyes are wide open, shows the investment to his master, absolutely thrilled to see him. Look what I did for you, master. The love for his master is just exuding out of the tone in his voice and the excitement to give to his master the return on his master's investment. Thrilled to see him. Joyful. And likewise, the master rewards him with com commendation and bliss. Same thing. The wording is so much the same. Verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Enter the joy of your master. Well... Same words, same blessing. Both servants doubled the investment. Both servants were given a different portion, but they doubled the investment, and the master rewards them for their faithfulness the same way. The exact same way, actually. The master returns to collect. He's greeted cheerfully by the slave entrusted with five. He's greeted cheerfully by the slave invested with two talents, entrusted with two talents, and the master each rewards, them, rewards each of them accordingly. The account of the slave with the five talents and the slave with the two talents are written the same way. And so again, the account of the slave with one talent jumps right out at us, strikes us. It kind of wakes us up. Whoa. One is the same as the two is the same, but the three, it's just the contrast is stark. And so finally we move on. And what do we find? But the master finds that the slave he entrusted with one talent is not ready. So the, this is a tragedy. The, the story, the parable, un, ends on a low note. Do you notice how much these parables end on low notes? How many of you say, well, I want to come to church and I want to end a service on a high note? Can't the pastor just, you know, you know, can't we end the service with a smile? How many times does Jesus end the parable with a sober, tragic warning? How many times? Well, today is the same. He ends it with a tragic warning. Verse 24 through 30, the master left each slave with, 
talents. The slave with five doubled his investment. The slave with two doubled his investment. But he with one buried his investment. And the master returned and rewarded the one with five. He rewarded the one with two. The accounts are identical, but the one with one jumps out at us. Two are ready for the master's return, but one is not ready. And, and by the way, as you look at this text, what I want you to know is that the slave returned to the master exactly what the master gave him. It's not like he stole from the master per se. It's not like he was, the problem is, is he did not invest the master's resources faithfully. So there was no return on the investment. That's the problem. So I continue on. He tells his master he didn't invest the talent and he blames it on his master. Verse 24 through 25. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter or where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Wow, he, he accuses the master of being hard in verse 24. Do you see that? He also who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You know that could translate as, as one commentator notes in the Greek text, it could not only translate as hard, but unrelenting, harsh, merciless, and stern. Do you see what he accuses the master of? Unrelenting, harsh, merciless, and stern. And it makes sense because lazy people like to accuse people who drive them to work harder of being harsh. You ever heard that? You have an unproductive employee at work, and what do they do? Well, the minute the master tells them or the minute the boss tells them, well, you need to work a little harder and they need to, you know, produce a little better. Well, that's harsh. No, the problem's not that the master's harsh. The problem is you're lazy. This is the problem, and I've seen it happen. He essentially accused the master of taking what is not his, and I think there's a lesson here in preaching too, because people that love to obey the master, that love to obey the Lord, they welcome the strong homiletical lessons in a sermon, the homiletical spears that cut right through them. The ones that love to obey the master, they welcome the cutting sermons. But the ones that are under conviction of sin, they're the first ones to say, that's harsh. They don't blame themselves, they blame the master. They blame the word of God. Instead, they ought to look into their own hearts and examine their own sin. You say, well, why was that harsh? Well, it made me uncomfortable. I don't want to be challenged. I don't want to grow up in Jesus. I don't want to be sanctified. Well, then you'll want to go to hell. That's the message of this text. You don't want to change. You don't want to be sanctified. You don't want to obey Jesus. You don't want to receive the words of Christ with joy and gratitude. That is indicative of a heart that's not been changed, that's not been born again. That's indicative of a heart that's on its way to hell. And we see that right here. He accused the master essentially of taking what is not his. Look at verse 24 says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. He says his master scared him. He was scary. And it makes sense that a lazy man finds his master scary. I'd find him scary too. 
If you're lazy and you're unproductive and you're not doing what your master wants you to do, you ought to be scared of them. How many people that are lazy, unproductive employees are really happy to see their boss? Right? It makes sense to me that that rebellious teenagers who don't want to honor their mother and father, it makes sense to me that they would speak bad of their mother and father, as sinful as it is, because their mother and father brings conviction to them. They ought to honor their mother and father with their deeds and with their words. But by disobeying them and then speaking poorly of them, they're showing themselves just to be like this lazy servant. Oh, my mom and dad are too strict, they say. No, the problem is, is you don't have a heart that desires your, to honor your mother and father. This is the problem. And so take note. When you start to feel the burrs of God's word in your heart, and you start to buck against the authorities that God has put over you, take note and ask yourself, is the problem with me? And the sign of a born-again heart is a heart that is willing to admit when the problem is with you. That's the sign of a born-again heart. Well, he says his master scared him. He was afraid. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. He says his master scared him. It makes sense that a lazy man would be afraid of his master. He takes no responsibility for his inaction. In fact, he blames his inaction on his master. Typical entitlement. I blame it on somebody else, right? Entitled people always blame their problems on other people. Well, it's because the way I was treated as a kid, or it was because the way my parents raised me, or it's because somebody said to me something when I was younger. Somebody looked at me the wrong way. I was scared, so I didn't do what God wanted me to. No excuse. He takes no responsibility for his inaction, and he blames it on his master, and his master tears a strip off of him. Remember, the master represents Jesus, verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Hold on a second here. You wicked and slothful servant. Not, oh, I could understand why you'd be afraid. Oh, I, underst I understand why you think I'm so hard and difficult to deal with. It's probably my tone. That's not what he said. He just turns around and he, basically, if the guy was looking to prove his thesis that the master's harsh, the master just proved it. What does he say to him? But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. And notice, I want you to note in our text today that wicked and slothful go together. Wicked and lazy go together. Evil and lazy go together. They always go together. Lazy people are wicked people. In fact, they so go together that in the Greek, the two words rhyme. You don't see this in your English translation, but in the Greek, they rhyme. Panere and aknere. They rhyme. Lazy people are wicked people and are condemned over and again in Scripture. I think I found a dozen, as I was looking at this week, I think I found a dozen Bible verses at least. There's probably way more that condemn lazy people. We ought to have no patience for it. Too many lazy people get a free pass. The master could come back and he could say, Oh, I can understand. You're just a sensitive person. That's not what he does. You're one of those. No. 
I was afraid. How many people, by the way, in our day, get away with blaming it? Well, you're so harsh, or that just scares me, or I didn't like that, or that made me uncomfortable, so I didn't do what I was told. It doesn't work that way with Jesus Christ at all. It doesn't work that way. There's a generation, we live among a generation that has been coddled. Coddled. And they will be coddled straight to hell. And by the way, if you are among the parents, the mothers, and the fathers that coddle your children, you are doing them no favors. Especially in the world that we're living in right now. Do you think that when your children become older and when they grow up, do you think it's going to be an easier or a more difficult world? I think we're moving into hard times. And if you coddle your children, you are preparing them to fail in hard times. But you need to raise children to learn how to take responsibility, whether it's hard or not. Because that's what Jesus expects of them. The master tells him he could have at least earned an interest at the bank. Verse 27, look at what he says. Well, verse 26, he, he just does away with his excuses. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. He just blows his arguments out of the water and turns the table on him. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. He says, you could have at least gone to the bank. He didn't even go to the bank. He hid his light under a basket. That's what he did. And so what does the master do is he gives his talent to one with ten. The one with ten, verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. We have a lesson here about God's judgment by way of the parable in verse 29 where Jesus says, for to everyone who has will more be given and he who has an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We have a lesson about God's judgment. The same phrase occurs in chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus repeats it here. And God takes from the ones who do nothing and gives to the ones who do something. Do you hear that? This is the opposite of communism. Communism takes from the people, or socialism takes from the people who work and gives to the people who don't work. Jesus takes from the ones who don't work and gives to the people who work. There's a lesson for you. He takes from the ones who are unproductive and lazy and lousy stewards and full of excuses, and then he finds the ones who are actually productive and he gives it to them. And this is the way the world works eventually. You might be looking at the world right now today and you say, well, we're living in an unfair system. We're living in a system of terrible taxation. What we are, the harder I work, and more I'm paying to the government. And you're absolutely right. And the government turns around and wastes it all away. And you're absolutely right about that. But let me tell you something. One day, God will raise the valleys and he'll bring down the mountains. And this is the way it always works. So the system we're living in right now with all of the injustice around us is no excuse for laziness. It's simply we must look to the hand of the Lord and trust that he will reward our efforts. And the day will come when it will pay off. I promise you. I promise you. As wrong as it is, what we're having to live through right now. And this text, by the way, ends with a tone of terror. Verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
This is the same phrase used in chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 13, verse 42. Chapter 13, verse 50. Chapter 22, verse 13. Chapter 24, verse 5. How many times does Jesus repeat that, that phrase? How many times does that phrase end a parable? Ending the parable, ending the, teacher on, uh, the teaching on a tone of terror. A tone of terror. And uh, here's the thing. I've preached on these tones of terror many times, and people have complained I'm too harsh. Sounds familiar. I'm not saying anything Jesus didn't say. In fact, I'm simply quoting what Jesus says. And so be careful if the tone of terror is interpreted by you as too harsh. Be careful that you're not, the reason it's too harsh for you might be because you're the, what's the text say? The worthless servant. And by the way, the word worthless, apparently you can say that about people because Jesus says it right here. There is such a thing as worthless rabble or worthless people. As Jesus says it right here. He says it. And cast the worthless servant into the utter darkness. He ends the parable with a warning of hell. This man was not ready. He wasn't ready because he did nothing with Je for Jesus. And he wasn't ready, so he went to hell. Let's, let's, let's make some application here. Let's make a few more applications here before I wrap it up. God gives gifts to people as he chooses. He gave one man five, one man two, one man one. He gives gifts to people as he chooses. Our job is not to covet our neighbor's talents. By the way, our job is not to covet our neighbor's privileges. It's almost like we're supposed to walk around right now and feel guilty for our privileges. The Bible actually calls privileges blessings that are to be stewarded. So your job is not to covet another person's privilege, and your job is not to boast in your privilege, your job is simply to be grateful for what the Lord's given you, to receive it, to be glad, and to invest it accordingly. That's your job. All we have belongs to God. And fearfulness and timidity is no excuse for doing nothing for God. In fact, those who use fearfulness and timidity as an excuse for doing nothing to God end up in hell, according to this text. If you're fearful, stop it. Stop it. And by the way, Christians, if we should be characterized by anything according to this text, is initiative. An entrepreneurial spirit. Because what, what do these guys do? They're entrepreneurs. The boss doesn't tell them, the master doesn't tell them how to invest the money. In fact, in fact, in fact, the master, if you look at the text, doesn't even tell them to invest the money. They just do it. Because Christians ought to be characterized by initiative, by just simply doing. They say, that needs to be done. That will do good, so I do it. Initiative. That's what the born-again person does. The born-again person just does it. Doesn't even need to be told, really. Christians ought to be characterized by initiative, an entrepreneurial spirit, investing responsibly and trusting God for growth and return. It's actually interesting. The talents are like money, and really that's what it is. Talent, I said one talent is like 20 years wages, according to one commentator. I thought this quote was great by Matthew Henry. And just to paraphrase, paraphrase what he says, he, he, Matthew Henry says, talents are like manure. Money is like manure. 
If you pile it up, it just stinks. But if you spread it, things grow. Okay? So if, if you want to take all the talents and all the gifts and all the money that God's given you and you simply want to do it, you're just accumulating a manure pile. But what God wants you to do is he wants to take your gifts, take your abilities. He wants you to take your money and he wants you to invest it in ways that are going to benefit other people, including your family, including your church, including your community. This is what God wants you to do. Money's like manure. Abilities are like manure. If you just store it, it stinks. But if you spread it, things grow. Here, by the way, some people walk away from the Bible and it says, well, the Bible hates rich people. God must hate rich people. God's really down on rich people. Notice what happens here. Here, the rich man goes to heaven and the poor man goes to hell. Think about that. There's other warnings in the Bible about having many riches. There's other warnings about it. But what happens in this text? It's the rich man that goes to heaven. It's the poor man that goes to hell. Don't forget that. Don't let people take things out of balance. Sometimes the reason people are poor is because they're lazy. Not always. But we ought to be able to discern between the two. In fact, I was writing a biography this week of John Bunyan, the 17th century pastor. Spent 13 years in jail for preaching and gathering churches. And, and what it said about him is his first position in ministry is they appointed him as a deacon of the church to distribute to those who are in need. And one of the things that set him apart as an excellent deacon in the church is he was able to discern between the ones who had true needs and the ones who thought they had needs, but their problem was is they were lazy. There's a difference. Some of you are starting businesses, are expanding your businesses, even right now in these times that we're living in. I think that's excellent. I think that's excellent. Because I think Christians have an entrepreneurial advantage in that, first of all, we understand how the world works because we have God's word. But secondly, we understand that we have a God who blesses those who invest. You do it wisely, you don't do it stupidly. You think about it. Well, God invests or blesses those who invest. The text tells us that as much. It's indicated right there. You know, I, I tell my kids all the time, you ought to tell your kids this. Learn a skill and turn a profit. Make yourself skillful and then sell your skill. And then when you earn a profit, use that to earn more profits. This is the Christian way of thinking. Lazy people are evil people, so don't hesitate. We should never be shy as Christians to correct laziness. Ever. Never be shy to correct laziness. Sometimes when I'm with someone who I can tell is lazy and they're just sitting around complaining because they don't have anything, and I know, well, it's because you're not working hard enough. And I know it. I just, you ever feel that it just starts to boil up inside of you? Well, I've learned just to say something now. In fact, the Bible is so serious about this. The Bible tells us that if a man doesn't work, he should not eat. I remember many years ago, about 10, 11 years ago, there was a man, he wanted to have lunch with me, and he'd been coming out to the church for a while, and I knew he didn't work. I said, no, I don't want to have lunch with you, because I didn't think he should eat. I thought he should get a job and then come back to me and ask if we can have lunch. It's true. 
Jesus has no time for it. John Brada said, Alas, how many professed Christians are utterly useless? Why? Because Christians are just so nice all the time. How many professed, how many people in the church are utterly useless? And you say, well, what should I do? Well, make yourself useful. Pray about it. One of the things you can do is, is you just say, well, I'm, I'm praying. Pray to the Lord. Say, God, how can I take what you've given me and invest it properly? And by the way, you ought not, like not everyone gets rich. What do we find? One guy has five talents and, get, and then has ten. One guy has two talents and then has four. He doesn't even have as many talents as the one other guy who's, when he started out. The one guy started out with five. The other guy started out or finished with four. So not everyone gets the same amount of money and not everybody's rich. And the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. We take this material realm, which Jesus is using, and I think the principles are true because God created the spiritual and the material, but the same thing is true in the spiritual. You say, well, how can I be used of God in a spiritual way? Be faithful with what you have. Be faithful with what you have. Invest your time in your family. Invest your time in your children. Spend time pointing your children to the scriptures. Invest your time in your church community. Invest your time witnessing to people that God brings across your path. And you say, well, I, how, how do I figure out what my spiritual gifts are? Well, just pray about it, and the Lord will open doors for you, and then go through those doors. Some people think the church is the place where you ought to go, and you put your spiritual gifts on display. No, it's not about putting your spiritual gifts on display. It's about a returning an investment on God, or with God's given you. God's given you spiritual gifts. God's given you abilities, and you ought to use them. You ought to use them. How many Christians are utterly useless? Why? They're not seeking to bless people. I've, I've noticed, by the way, as I've, as I've seen a lot of pastors chatting over these last two years, there's a whole bunch of pastors out there right now that are complaining about how tired they are. They're just whining about it. And every single one of them didn't open their church. Not one of the guys that got in all the trouble last year not one of them I've heard complain, and some have been through some really lousy situations. They're simply like, I just got to do what I got to do. Have I been tired? Sure, I've been tired. But at the end of the day, if the Lord calls you to something, you do it. This is the point. You got to be faithful. And how many of those, by the way, over those two years, they simply buried their treasure underground because the government told them to? And they had a wonderful opportunity. Being ready is not just, this is important as I close up, this is important. So many people think being ready is just simply not sinning. Well, I don't get drunk, I don't look at porn, and I don't steal. Well, certainly you shouldn't get drunk, you shouldn't look at porn, and you shouldn't steal, and you shouldn't tell lies. But for so many, that's the measure of their Christianity. But by the way, today I'm not asking you what you didn't do for Satan, I'm asking you what you did do for Jesus. That's the point. This, this is not a text saying, what didn't you do for Satan? This is a text saying, what did you do for Jesus? Because if you're born again, you'll do something for Jesus. And how many churches and how many Christians just simply squander, squander the gifts that Jesus has given them? And their only goal in life is to just not do things that people consider bad, as opposed to going out there 
and looking at this green earth that the Lord's given us and saying there's an opportunity to do something on this earth and especially to do something for God. And that's our mindset. That ought to be our mindset. J.C. Ryle said, let us beware of a do-nothing Christianity. Such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. That is not Christianity. Do-nothing Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. We live in an indulgent generation, not just an entitled and lazy generation, but an indulgent generation. And, and so i got to ask you the question, are you ready? Are you ready? Well, when I ask that, I'm... I'm not, I'm not asking if you've done nothing for the devil. I'm asking, have you done something with what God has given you for God? Have you taken what he's given you and have you used it for him? Have you used it for him? And so I close with the question that I've closed over the last few sermons. Are you ready?